You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year and happy New His Dark Materials episode. It's episode 9. Also, New Year, New Us, New Book, The Subtle Knife, chapters 1 and 2. I'm one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as Arithmetric on Twitter. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Liza Arbor on Twitter or Tumblr. Hello, 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 everybody. We're back. We're back with His Dark Materials in 2020, covering the second book of the main trilogy, The Subtle Knife. You guys, no spoilers, but it's the one with Will. Well, the one of two. That's true. One of two with Will. And we are so excited uh, because Will's introduction and the next chapter, right, are just, there's a lot going on. It's really dense. Sometimes I'm like, Philip Pullman, you could have made these like separate chapters. Let's be real. We are only going to do chapters one, the cat and the hornbeam trees, and two, among the witches. We're slowing it down. Mm Mm-hmm. So we can cram it all in at the end. Yeah, it's going to be followed by our discussion, our book spoilers after section. So if you haven't listened to our His Dark Materials episodes yet, we did cover the first book, Northern Lights or The Golden Compass, if you're in the US and have not seen the UK version. Uh, We covered it. We covered the first season of the show and the first book. Loved covering that. It was my first time. I was new popped that dust cherry and so we are going to be spoiling (laughs) listen i don't know what i'm on today i have caffeine (sighs) so we're going to be following all of this discussion with no spoilers or minimum spoilers as few spoilers spoilers for (laughs) the first few chapters only of the subtle knife will be in this after that will be a dust discussion where we Spoil the main trilogy. We're just going to spoil the heck out of it. We're just going to spoil, spoil, spoil it. And then after that, Eliana's going to have to tune out because I am going to spoil the books of dust and monologue like a supervillain. And it's going to be fun for me. So stay tuned for that. But everyone, we have good news. So yesterday, as Chloe and I organically tried to record this episode, (laughs) that technical difficulties... (laughs) Uh, We came up with a deadline. I work well with deadlines and set timelines and feeling obligated and accountable to other people. So I have made a very romantic promise to my sister wife, Chloe. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) It's her. You guys, Eliana has committed to me that she is going to. You guys thought this was like a real thing, like an announcement. Well, it is. She's going to finish La Belle Sauvage by Valentine's Day. That is so romantic. This is actually That's... a big announcement. <laughs> Gentlemen, ladies, pay attention. This is how you do it. This is how long-term relationships are formed. Uh, read the books that your partners want you to read. Yeah, what is what is this in love languages? Act of service? Maybe? Yeah, I think so. Then it leads into quality time. Those are my two big love languages. They like tied for me when I took that quiz. And it's love languages, not just for me, but it's going to be for you guys, too, because it means Eliana is going to read these books. I'm going to finally get her to do it. 
I'm gonna finally, I'm getting her to commit yeah. to reading these books. And then she's gonna talk about them with us in the dustiest discussions. But there's gonna be Because two. it's really lonely. It's lonely without you there, There are gonna be two dusty discussions. It's just gonna keep, like, being different tiers, right? Because, like, we're doing baby steps, you know? You gotta cut, you gotta cut the steak up into little bite-sized pieces. Yeah, I haven't made you commit to the other one yeah. yet, just LaBelle. But I know once you commit to LaBelle, I think the rest will come easy. So we'll see. We'll see. Like, medium rare, you know? Just bloop, on the grill, off the grill. Read it. Read The Secret Commonwealth. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> if you guys have followed us at all, we have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. And, you know... I would say that there are some people that did sponsor this episode. Our patrons over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon are really the sponsors of this episode. We really, against all odds, should not have probably been able to add a second book series since we've already committed to one, our Song of Ice and Fire read-through, where we are just going through all of the chapters point of view by point of view for years. We're going to do it for years. A huge shout out to all of those patrons in our Honor, Stranger, Thunder, Chestnut, Sweetfoot, and Zorse tiers. Those are our tier names. They are the names of horses from the A Song of Ice and Fire series. They're important That's true. names. One of them is an entire species, though. Um, shout out. And it's better than the rest. Yes. To Warren, whom we cite often, who asked George about Zorses uh, on behalf of us. And George explained that they are, in fact, based on the real-life zebra-horse hybrid, which I needed to know. That was actually really important <laughs> to me. It's, I think it's been really necessary for us to, to branch out into other things, for us to, you know, feel... Free. Free, excited, and I mean, I, a lot of you came on this journey of His Dark Materials with us, with Chloe especially, right? Starting it for the first time. And I cannot thank you all enough. Like, I was just like, you guys, what if we did this book that I read when I was growing up? And so thank you to those of you who were excited, who, like me, had read it before and were supportive of that. And for those of you who were supportive in just jumping along and being like, sure, let's do it. Let's take on this new ride. Yeah, over in the History of Westeros podcast group, we had some people talking about some Sansa analysis that they kind of changed their mind on, uh, talking about our podcast in Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, Sansa Stark. And it, it really made me think, you know, like reading these books now, I didn't read them when I was younger, like you and many of our listeners did. This is my first time, as some of you also have come along this journey, like Eliana said with me, uh, and there are some things like the Harry Potter books. I read them now and I'm like, oh, I feel way differently about this than I did then. So I love that nostalgia factor that some of you get from this. It's really exciting for me. And I'm really excited that I feel so accepted into reading it. You know, like I don't feel like I was missing anything at the time, but it, it, I feel like I had a demon within me all along. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> Yes, and I mean, along with that, as we all know, maybe de Chloe's demon has settled before mine. I, youthful. <laughs> Are you calling well, me old? No. You're older than Clo I am. I know, Chloe's, Chloe's younger than me. But, oh. I mean, she, as you all know, and by this discussion of a dusty discussion, has surpassed me, so. Yeah, that's true. 
Maybe my demon settled first. You know, they say that Chloe matures faster. Uh, I'm going to be immature forever on that Jason Mendoza grind. Well, thank you so much to our patrons who make Girls Gone Canon His Dark Material episodes possible. They make them a privilege. A privilege for all to have. So... Speaking of, you know, our supporters in general, we got a lot of messages between ending our coverage of the last book slash the television series, which we will be touching on very, very lightly every now and then. Technically, none of it is really spoilers based on what we have in this book. But anyways, um, by this point. We are going to address all of those messages at a point that is not this episode. Yeah. Because it's a lot and we want to be able to give you some time. We've got some funny, funny questions that are in a way a crossover between the two series that we read. (laughs) Yeah. They literally are. There's a lot to be taken from it, right? Like a lot of you are listening to both sides of the story, A Song of Ice and Fire and His Dark Materials right now. Uh, so in listening to both of those, in crossing those streams, you're getting oh a lot of these same thematics because, of course, we're reading both of them at the same time and we're picking out those thematics, whether consciously or subconsciously. Uh, we'll try to keep them as focused, obviously, as we can. But I, for now, we will get back to your questions, like Eliana said, at a later date. We don't want to clog you too much. We've talked so much already. We will leave you with a review we got on iTunes from Candid59. It's I don't know, this is heartfelt, because they said that we were their favorite His Dark Materials podcast, (laughs) and usually we're in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, right? So this is so cool to hear. Uh, This was one of our first ones that was purely His Dark Materials. Yeah, I love both of my children equally, is what I want you guys to know. I do. Candid59 said, Discovered them while looking for podcasts that covered His Dark Materials show. Love that not only are they super insightful, but also critical to a fair extent. True. They're also funny. Aw. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Totally could see myself vibing with them in real life. Just finished listening to their coverage of the books as well. Can't wait for them to cover more HDM. Truly deepen my lore and knowledge. Keep up the great work, ladies. With a less than three heart, which I think ties it all together. Great review. Good job. I give you five stars. I'm going to give them a five-star review. Thank you. A five-nine-star review. Ah! 59. Oh. Almost nice. <laughs> I was going to say that. I'm so glad that I didn't. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad that we're on the same, we're on the same wavelength. We are both five. Um, that was a lot, it's though. So yeah, I, I, I just, that was emotional. I'm like, oh, we're a His Dark Materials podcast, too. You're a Greyjoy and a Stark. But are you a cat and the hornbeam? Wow. But are you a cat and the hornbeam trees? Bella what are you talking about? So Chapter one. Bella Qua, Bella Quat, I don't know. We are about to see some other worlds, is what I want to talk about right now with you, Eliana, as we start the cat and the hornbeam trees. We open in a world that is different than ours and different than the world that Lyra went into. Uh, we open to Will's world. So, there's a boy. His name's Will. Can I make it any more obvious? (laughs) If you haven't read this yet, what are you doing? Go read the first couple chapters and then we'll talk. But, if you don't know him, Will, uh, he is in a different world. He's in a world that imitates ours. 
it feels kind of like an anachronism to us because we just spent so much time getting obsessed and into the framework of Lyra's crazy world, right? But now we are home with technology. And that's what makes this meeting of worlds in Chitagaze so powerful and the themes in the story moving forward as well. Two people are coming together from two different worlds. And I think we could say they would unite a little bit of humanity in a war soon for their free will. You know, free will. Well. Free will. Well. I want I want yeah. shirts that say free will. Oh, I, I think you could do that. Maybe is it, are people gonna design. think it's like? Are people gonna think it's like a Free Willy reference though? Yeah, just a thought. Um, yeah, and I think that uh, his name being Will is really significant. It's something that we're going to obviously deepen our exploration of as we go through these books. But for now, um, I'm gonna just kick us all off with Two Worlds, One Family by Phil Collins. <sighs> Let fate decide to guide these lives. We see. Including Elaine Perry. Elaine Perry will not follow her son down the narrow, dimly lit neighborhood. She's afraid, but time's running out to get her to Mrs. Cooper's house. Mrs. Cooper smells like lavender water, and she looks at Will and his mother, who he strongly resembles. They stand out to the eye, even beyond their resemblance. Obviously, it's a different circumstance from the beginning of book one, but I, I I just feel like there's like a similar anxiety underpinning these openings, right? Because, you know, when we start book one with Lyra, there's that need to hide because she's in a place she's not supposed to be. Whereas for Will, right, he's he's out in the open, but there's still suddenly that urge and need to hide and get out of view. Yeah, it does kind of, uh, it's a repeat, right? Like, you open with the girl hiding in the closet. We open right now with the boy trying to hide in plain sight, I guess. You know, trying to mm-hmm. trying to get somewhere to hide, really. Uh, and, you know, there's something interesting there in the lavender water with Mrs. Cooper that really stuck out to me on this reread. Because for me, this is now a reread. If you guys listen to our <laughs> Patreon Lantern Slides episode... There's actually a lantern slide included at the end of the book about a character named Lord Boreal, who uses a fragrantly floral-scented oil. So I might bring it up in the dusty discussion uh, without Eliana's ears and eyes to hear and see. And nose to smell. And nose to smell. You're getting too sensual for me. So Will (laughs) is glaring unhappily, strong-jawed, and his mother has musty clothing, untidy hair, half of her makeup is on. Both of them have straight black eyebrows and broad cheekbones. Like I said, the resemblance is strong. Will asks Mrs. Cooper if his mother can stay there for a while. He offers her food packets in return, and Mrs. Cooper is kind of nervous to accept. This is kind of a weird situation. She asks, you know, does your mom need a doctor, or is there family or social services that could maybe help you guys? But... Will quite obviously has no one else. He's pretty desperate. Yeah, he promises Mrs. Cooper, it's fine. It's not going to be for long. I'm going to be back soon. And then I'll I'll take her home. And his mom throughout all of this is just watching him so trustfully. And Will returns back that warm smile and gives her as much reassurance as he can. This moment like moves Mrs. Cooper. She's really touched. Same as all the rest of us in this moment, crying big tears. And she's like, all right, all right, Elaine can stay for a few days. And it's like, she can stay in my daughter's room. 
My daughter has moved to Australia. And she's obviously never coming back. You don't just move to Australia. What a joke. The animals will get you. Drop bears. Not even once. <laughs> Not <you> even <laughs> once. No. <Nope>. Drop bears. <sighs> so Will says he'll be with a friend and he'll phone often. He hugs and kisses his mother clumsily and his eyes are wet with tears. He stops before leaving, though, and shakes hands with Mrs. Cooper, thanking her. She wants him to tell her what's really going on, but he says, it's complicated, Mrs. Cooper. And then he repeats, she won't be any trouble. Yeah, we have this quote of, that wasn't what she meant, and both of them knew it. But somehow, Will was in charge of this business, whatever it was. The old lady thought she'd never seen a child so implacable. I love the parallels of Will and Lyra so far, right? Like, you open this book and you're like, okay, who's this kid? Because you expect, like, we're in another world. Oh, it's not Lyra, right? This is not Lyra. Um, and while while Lyra's not exactly, I don't know, she's not called implacable in the books at all, right? Like, Will is called implacable, but Lyra is most definitely described as determined and ferocious and unyielding throughout the story. You get in the Northern Lights in the Egyptian Council. She looked fierce and stubborn as she sat there, small against the high-carved back of the chair. And then Farder Quorum, uh, his emotions on Lyra in Northern Lights as well. He took pity on the fierce, desperate little girl and didn't send her away. They become, in the end, Will and Lyra, no spoiler spoilers, but they are kind of fireforged friends after they meet, right? Um, they're both kind of ferocious and they go through a lot and that's kind of a big part of their relationship. Absolutely. They're, that determination. For now, though, Will is turning to face his neighborhood and goes back to a loop of houses. Many of them look the same, except their house stands out just a little bit because it's not the best kept in comparison to the rest of them. His mother, though, had tried to plant a garden, but um, it died of dehydration. Everyone hydrate yourselves <laughs> <laughs> chloe tells me that uh, her partner reminds her all the time to hydrate chloe don't forget to hydrate <sighs> listen i hydrate as much as i can um so i'm so excited for this next part if you guys watched his dark materials the adaptation that recently was on hbo bbc we loved it we covered it please Go watch it if you haven't. It was worthwhile to watch. Even as a super hardcore nerd book fan, um, I couldn't... The grievances weren't too big, you know? It was no yeah. Game of Thrones. It was... <laughs> thank God. Thank God. I was worried. It was all right. It was a show based on the books as opposed to... It definitely thematically resonated with the books I have read, is what I'm saying. As opposed to books based on the show, you know? It it's made real me different. feel... It made me feel... <laughs> And the part that I felt the most about was Moxie, the cat, who I love. Moxie. It is the family Perry cat, comes out of one living plant, the only living plant outside, a hydrangea, and wraps around Will's legs, and Moxie's meowing. He's like, have you seen him, girl? And Will makes himself invisible as he returns into his house, listening at the door for any activity before he enters. He knows he's on a limited time crunch before, quote-unquote, they come back, and moves quickly, looking for a green leather writing case. The introduction of both Will's mental focus on invisibility comes back into play in 
not just the next chapter with Serafina, who's focusing on being unseen in the ship, but also in the Secret Commonwealth, so we'll note that later in the Dusty discussion, for those of you keeping track. Will looks through his mom's drawers, and he's ashamed as he passes her other drawers, her underwear, and he goes to look through other rooms. Yeah, and then it gets dark, right? And he makes himself some beans and toast. And then the phone rings 26 times and stops because this book was published in, like, I don't know, the late 90s. And not everyone had cell phones where you could just turn off the ringer. Because I am a millennial who does not turn my ringer on ever. <laughs> and Will still hasn't found his writing case. He's exhausted and he falls asleep half past one and dreams vague, awful dreams of anxiety in his mother mood. And then he wakes up after three hours. And when he wakes up, he knows two things immediately. He knows where the case is and that men were breaking into the house downstairs. He moves Moxie off of him and quietly gets himself into like an evacuate ready <laughs> situation. And I, what I love about this is right from the get go of meeting Will, we're getting this characterization of him of his like sense of intuition we don't get any explanation for why will knows where the case is or that the men are downstairs and like that's the point it's meant to be very uncanny that he has this this strong intuition yeah absolutely like he drifts off he goes to bed and like drifts off and then he wakes up and he's like he knows he knows that they're there you know that that's insane Mm -hmm. um, and he has such strong traits about his character in general, right? Like a very strong intuition, really actually a strong young man. He is strong, uh, fierce loyalty when he trusts someone or likes someone. He's a bold character. And I like that Pullman worked his facial features into that, right? Like his broad cheekbones and strong eyebrows that accentuates this about him. Uh, whereas Lyra is kind of described as like dishwater blonde, you know, like small, tiny feral creature comes in the night i don't know <laughs> she's a wild yeah wild feral bad absolutely cat. She's a bad cat um but will is just you know he's this broad sharp creature and he does a lot to contrast against her he he leaves his bedroom silently as he realizes the men are in the house and fuck and he finds a sewing machine at the spare room at the top of the stairs he very carefully opens a compartment on the machine, looking for the catch to open it. He finds the case there, and then he realizes that he's stuck. He uh, cannot move, because they will find him, and they're going to find him anyway. Male voices drift up the stairs. They say they need to keep looking for it upstairs, and up they come. A flashlight beam sweeps across the floor. Will crouches in the dark, his very last move. He's unable to hide anywhere else at this point. And as soon as the door opens, he springs up into the guy that opens the door. But wildcard, Moxie the wild murder cards. cat, decides to come Moxie dance the under their feet. She trips up the big guy and down he falls. He crashes with a crack down the stairs, his head smacking against a table. Ah, dead. And Will leaps down the stairs and out the door. Moxie the murder cat. Oh my God. The best. Truly the best animal. We have animal. to pause and give Moxie the murder cat her due space will then bolts out passing the milkman jumping across a fence into a garden past a house over a garden wall down a lawn through a hedge into shrubs and then under a bush it's all very ferris bueller's day off and pullman uses this scene to describe the technology that's in this world he says that the men will come after him with their cell phones which um 
probably a little different than my cell phone that I never turned the ringer on for. And the milkman's electric cart has lights on it. I looked into this. <laughs> And apparently the term for these electric carts, right, it, it, that's a descriptor of it, is called a milk float. And they all use electric battery power. Once upon a time, they were pulled by horses. They are apparently common-ish throughout Europe, um, especially in the UK, and were run by local dairies, though have been you know, phasing out a little as more supermarkets stock milk more regularly. These carts tend to go really slow, about 16 to 18 miles per hour. Kind of sounds like it's a golf cart that, you know, has been, that also carries milk, which, word. Uh, some of them go up to 80 miles per hour, and I personally assume that these are the Teslas of the milk float world. Wow. And That's Are there races? I should look if there are races. You honestly should. Will is not milk float racing. He uh he is trying to stay undercover. He waits to enter the main road. It's too early. Fewer people are out and about. He wants to blend in. The crack of the man hitting the table and his dead body keep haunting Will's mind, and Will feels guilty. He's not just guilty about that, though. He's guilty about a lot of other stuff, like Mrs. Cooper and his mom, for example. What if they find her? he thinks. And Moxie, who'd feed Moxie? Would Moxie worry about where they were? Would she try to follow them? What a sweet boy. Will literally worries about his cat. Yes. I mean, like, that's how you know someone's someone's good and sweet. Um, though, I think what's even more endearing about this is like, yeah, I think Moxie might wonder where they are. But also, Moxie's a murder cat, and yeah. she can fend for herself. Like, she's not going to go hungry. She has a whole corpse there. She's quite now. obviously proven herself capable of defending. Yeah, against humans. She's like, even. I have felled, I have felled this giant. Yeah, and like humans, and we're the worst. So, if you can defeat a human, you're good. She's going to be fine. Will checks through all of his belongings, and everything is still there, so maybe he'll be fine. He searches the bag that he grabbed on his way out the door. It's a tote of his mother's, and in it are letters from a lawyer, a map of southern England, chocolate, toothpaste, spare socks, and pants. When Will was younger, when he was seven, uh, he started to notice that his mom was different than other people he interacted with, and that he had to kind of look after her. Uh, they would go to the supermarket, and she would play a game with him where... He would tell her if people were looking or not, and they would only put things in the cart if no one was looking. He would be the lookout. He would go now when the coast was clear, uh, and they would snatch the items quickly. But by the end of the game, they would reach the checkout, and that was when it would have to end. His mom would suddenly not be able to find her purse. She would tell him that the enemy must have stolen it, and they would go restock the items on the shelves one by one. And then the enemies would be tracking them because they had her credit card numbers and her purse, and uh, the, the fear would escalate from there. And then Will eventually realized that the real danger of these enemies was a game that his mom was making, and it was so clever, she didn't want to scare him, so he would pretend not to be frightened to reassure her. But then they had to change bank accounts a few times, and then they would find the purse at home. And Will realized that the enemies, they were very real, but they were in his mom's head. Uh, you couldn't visibly see them, but they were still there. And from that moment, Will knew that he had to protect his mom. 
and he was very sensitive to her needs, and he had to be the man in the house, of course, because his father, John Perry, had vanished a long time ago. A lot of book one focused on Lyra's slow realization, right? And I say slow just because it was stretched out throughout the entire book, like that was what it was about. Um that her parents are humans infallible. We discussed this during our coverage of Northern Lights slash the Golden Compass that like it's it's that same realization you have when you're like a teenager and realizing your parents aren't gods and but turned up to like 11. I guess, you know, maybe your your parents are like fallen angels instead, whatever. Uh, and the subtle knife explores that for Will. And we start off with that backstory, right? Um, and it condenses it and shows how Will had to come to that realization about his parents much earlier than Lyra. Um, because both, in many different ways, put their parents on a pedestal, right? First in, for Lyra, it was in the way that she thought about her parents' death as explorers, and like the glamour of Mrs. Coulter later on, and then in the exploration of Lord Asriel, learns there's more to them, and that idolization isn't real. Will's story, on the other hand, much more mundane, probably more similar to many other real people's stories, and by real people I mean all of us here in this world listening, and because of that it's a lot more relatable, the way that he comes to realize, oh, my mother is also just human, and he has his own journey as he comes to terms with like who his father was, and I think that's going to continue for the rest of the book. That's uh, a lot of what The Subtle Knife is about for Will and the way that book one was that for Lyra. Yeah, most of uh, the majority of normal society, not in fantasy, youth fiction books, We, uh, those of us that don't have father figures or don't know our father figures, we have questions about our fathers, right? And most of those mm -hmm. father figures are not evil villains who murder children. So it's a little mm -hmm. different, right? Like I say most, I'm sorry, you know, it's not, yeah. It, it, um, we have a very different experience. Like, Lyra has a different experience, obviously, than most people. Will, you know, he has so many questions, though, about his dad. And it's kind of an open-ended story, right? Because, like, all he knows is that his dad led expeditions, that he was once a Marine officer, that he goes to remote parts of the world, and that he's been lost ever since, and that he was handsome and brave and clever. And his mom, uh, that's all she can tell him. There are no photos that prove these adventures. So the only thing that's really stuck with Will over the years about his dad is one time when she told him, one day you'll follow in your father's footsteps. You're going to be a great man too. You'll take up his mantle. Yeah. She believes in him. She believes in both of them. Yeah. <sighs> and it's a certain sense of pride, right? It yeah. gave him a, a big amount of pride, a big amount of confidence. It led him to keep her secret to take care of her, to cook, you know, learn to cook from her when she was lucid, learn to conceal himself to keep attention off of them from neighbors, from people at school. Um, it forced Will to obviously grow up very fast. Yeah, definitely. And we, we see that difference in the different ways that Lyra and Will have grown up uh, very shortly. But some of it also interestingly came through these games, right? And that's what's prepared them for what's to come. Without even realizing it, because no one ever tells you you're going to go on, like, a great adventure to literally uh, alternate universes. Like, that's not a thing people were just told. Um, as you'll recall, Lyra's Jordan, the, the chapter 
speaks of her time playing at war with the other children in Oxford and a lot of how she learned to, you know, spin yarns. Her lying, right? Will's own games with his mother taught him about secrecy and about hiding. And then, you know, he becomes a child caretaker and it stops being a game. But through that, he learns different skills for survival. Was afraid, though, that like his mother was going to be taken away from him, even though he was taking care of her or that it might end up with him being taken from her. Uh, things were smooth enough with this bumpy give and take for a while until, you know, the men came and these men were all like, where is John Terry? Has he contacted you? What do you know about his whereabouts? Yeah, the first time the men showed up, Will told them off and they left. Uh, at first they were like, what is this kid doing? But then they were like, all right, well, he's kind of aggressive. And they're like, we'll just leave this time. <laughs> it's impressive, honestly. Uh, but It really <laughs> actually is. It did strengthen the fantasy of his father, though, that they left, you know, because it, it clarified that, yeah, his dad might actually be out there and in trouble. And it made him kind of be like, oh, my dad, my special heroic father, you know, romanticizing that. Uh, but the next time that the men come, Will is at school and they unfortunately prey on Elaine's good nature. One of the men talking to Elaine and keeping her distracted while... Uh, the other men are searching the house, but Will comes home early, just in time, finding them there, and he yells at them to leave. And they can tell Will isn't going to take this to the authorities, obviously, because mm -hmm. they found that his mother is the weak spot, right? They could take his mother away just by calling the authorities, and then after that, they become more persistent in their approach. Hmm. Something that came to mind as you were saying, you know, the way that um, it is impressive, that this child was so aggressive and terrifying to these grown men that, like, the first few times they're like, maybe we should leave. And I think that we're going to see that Will's sort of bravado in, in being able to do that sort of intimidation is another one of his skills. Yeah, uh, he's fiercely protective. They come back again, though, to break in when neither are home. They're just like, we'll just not deal with that. Elaine is at the park, Will has gone to fetch her, and then we have this scene of it was getting worse for her now, and she believed that she had to touch every separate slat and every separate bench beside the pond. Will would help her to get it done quicker. When they got home that day, they saw the back of the men's car disappearing out of the clothes, and he got inside to find that they'd been through the house and searched most of the drawers and cupboards. He knew what they were after. The green leather case was his mother's most precious possession. He would never dream of looking through it, and he didn't even know where she kept it. But he knew it contained letters, and he knew she read them sometimes, and cried, and it was then that she talked about his father. So sad. I know. I'm so sad for Elaine. What a strong woman. Yeah. She's doing the she best she can. She actually really is. In that she situation, I mean, I'd be a fucking mess, so. And good on Will. Good boy. What a good boy. I... I do think if you've seen the adaptation on the BBC HBO production uh, this last year, season one, I think they expanded and did this. They, they did this really well. Mm -hmm. They showed just all of this some life. They breathed some life into it. And I think it's sad that this is it, though. Uh, we don't get much more of Elaine Perry. I don't feel like that's too bad of a spoiler. We just don't. You don't hear much about Elaine. She's not a main character. Uh, obviously, Coulter and Asriel are big main characters, right? Like, those two will never change. We get tons of Asriel and tons of Coulter. Coulter firsthand, Asriel kind of background. Uh, but Elaine, this is it. 
John Perry, John Perry gets so much backstory and drama and heroism, right? But Elaine, who held it together in the face of all of this strife, this is her ode, this intro chapter to Will, so I guess we have to appreciate it while we do. I do worry that John Perry kind of almost falls in that good guy just a little rough around the edges stereotype that Pullman likes to do with Asriel and... Uh, oh, but he helped in the flood, he said. I don't know. Uh, you know, is he a bad guy or is he just a renegade? Big energy, big energy. So, Will decides to send his mom to live with Mrs. Cooper, the only trustworthy neighbor, and now we're caught up because this is where the story starts to flash forward and it goes at a speed that we can keep up with. Yeah, uh, there's this line, though, you know, as we come back to the present of... Well, he was good at not being noticed. He'd have to not be noticed harder than he'd ever done in his life before and keep it up as long as he could till either he found his father or they found him. And if they found him first, he didn't care how many more of them he killed. Jesus. <laughs> Will, zero to a hundred. Wow. <laughs> so fucking quick. Will, chill the fuck out. He needs to get some chill. My baby boy is grown up killed everybody maybe this is puberty i don't know for him <laughs> man i guess i mean i guess my is. my puberty was also bloody so <sighs> so here we go to will the murderer speaking of bloody and the green leather case and his journey to oxford yes because in will's world there's an oxford so he hitchhikes he jumps on two buses he walks he ends up in oxford after six hours He's exhausted. He hides in a cinema, he eats at a Burger King, and then he tries to find somewhere to hide and sleep. And I just have to ask, if you had to eat at Burger King, like gun to your head, I don't know why there'd be a gun to your head, but if there was, what would you eat right now? Wow, you really like changed the stuff on me. Um, I haven't eaten at Burger King in a long time. I prefer McDonald's and Taco Bell. Um... And I can tell you what I would order there for sure. But for Burger King, I recently saw some commercials for like the Impossible Burger. And it has me feeling intrigued. I'd, I would like to know what the Impossible Whopper tastes like. Salty, I hear. <laughs> you hear? You haven't tried it? Uh, I haven't tried it, no. I've had Impossible Burger. I just have had it on its own. Like, I cooked it. Um, mm. I do hear that the sodium content is out of this world on those things. Quickly, quickly, for context about where Will is and his journey to Oxford, um, Will's story starts out, he and his mother live in Winchester, which is about like an hour, a little over an hour's drive south of Oxford, uh, maybe a little over an hour, hour 15 or something like that, train ride between the two places for those of us, you know, who don't have as much um, geographic knowledge, but also just, just to set that reference that he's in Winchester. That explains why his mother has a map of southern England. Um, Will, though, right now is in a traffic circle lined with hornbeam trees when out comes a tabby who looks a bit like Moxie. Yes, he's full of junior whoppers. And oh my God. He, uh, he sees the cat. He's watching the cat. And I I'm excited about the hornbeam trees because there's so much symbolism having these here. Uh, they are you know, small trees in the Northern Hemisphere, and they have a smooth, fluted, beech-like bark, straight-veined leaves, and they bear fruit 
the fruit they bear is a nut. It's in a little lobed leaf-like bract, and it's very mm-hmm. hard wood. Like, they're very much so known for how sturdy the wood is. Also referred to as the iron wood or muscle wood because of its smooth bar- bark and muscular trunk. So very much so symbolic of Will to me. Like, this is what I think of. This works. These trees are much like him. Uh, hardest wood of any of the trees found in England, and it was typically used to make gears and pegs for water wheels and windmills. And there was even a tonic made from hornbeam that was said to relieve tiredness, exhaustion, and the leaves can also be used to stop bleeding and heal wounds, according to the Woodland Trust. Hmm. Interesting. I'll say no more. Interesting. Will longs for home so much, after being away from it for six, seven hours, that seeing this cat has tears welling in his eyes. <laughs> Just saying. Same. Um, everything is lit up. And it makes it look like a child's drawing or a stage set. And I love the way Pullman describes this. It's a great bit because Will, in the last scene, just finally rid himself of his childly possessions. And by childly possessions, I mean his home, his mother. He's leaving all of that. He's giving that up and sacrificing it to cross the threshold of growing up. Um, He's going to his next phase of being a hero. He's searching for answers And this is the moment for Will right before it all changes, right? Like he's homesick and then the window appears and he's already suspected something's different than what the world presents itself as, especially because of his father. But this tiny tear in the fabric of his world is the beginning of that abandonment of childhood of seeking the truth. Yes. And he discovers it because the cat reaches out it paws out the air, and then her tail and fur stand on end. And this is strange, for obvious reasons. Will watches, and then the cat suddenly vanishes in front of his eyes, even more strange, into thin air. Will immediately goes to see where the cat went, and he finds it. There's a square patch, it's nearly invisible, but it has a slightly different patch of grass on the other side. Will knew, without the slightest doubt, that that patch of grass on the other side was in a different world. He couldn't possibly have said why. He knew it at once, as strongly as he knew that fire burned and kindness was good. He was looking at something profoundly alien, and for that reason alone, it enticed him to stoop and look further. So again, we have another example of Will's uncanny intuition. He just knows. He just knows it's another world, which is fascinating. I don't know if that's like the same conclusion I would have come to. Especially in this day and age, I'd be like, oh, yes, hologram. No, I'm joking. I don't know. Probably. You've only you've only got so many, I guess, from the conclusions you can draw. Oh, my gosh. Whatever that means. Will goes through the window to new trees, and he's now surrounded by palm trees growing in a row in a broad boulevard of lit-up cafes and shops under a sea of silent stars. And so Chloe has talked about just now the hornbeams in the park. So I think it's really interesting the role that trees play in this story. We've already like discussed this aspect of the tree of knowledge, uh, especially in terms of the Edenic overtones of Lyra's childhood um in the previous book and maybe there's an aspect of that here too with will in this park and leaving his own world in this moment but i think it's more of just like it's quick it's simple it's easy to use trees in the story and the visuals and imagery to just tell you this is another world we had hornbeam trees now they're palm trees Mm -hmm. different yeah it's very much so indicating brand new place 
Um, he spends so much time describing every building and mm-hmm. you really get a sense of deco, right, in all of this. Uh, just like this art deco feel yeah. of all these buildings. It's not the same as just the normal industrialism in a city. It's really nice to read. It's nice that he filled these pages with all of this world building, but it did take up a lot of pages. So... <laughs> Could have been a different chapter. It could have. It's a bridge through the worlds. We needed this book. So to the stars. Will looks through the window one last time, seeing Oxford, and then he turns away into the new world. I love that these chapters all kind of have that theme, right? Like the last chapter with Lyra was looking one last time and then walking away, and here with Will mm-hmm. and then with Serafina. Very cool. Very cool progression. Um, he can't find the cat. The cat that went through the window, so he walks around. Yep, typical cat things just disappearing. Yep. The place is totally Mediterranean or Caribbean vibes, full of narrow streets and gardens, and it feels hip and young, like a place people would eat and drink and dance at, but the problem is that there are no people. Everything is eerily quiet. He stops at a cafe. It has an espresso machine and a bar, and he looks at all the stale, half-eaten food on the counters and tables. Yeah, and I what I love, again, about the imagery and the description of all this is that we aren't told that something is wrong. It's never said that something's off here, right? We're, we get the vibe of it because this place isn't portrayed, right, like an abandoned ruin. It's, it's lit up, and... Will notes that the glasses are still half full, which shows that they're unfinished. There's that cigarette <laughs> that was burning in the ashtray until it was at its butt. You can usually tell that, you know, from, like, where the ashes fell. And together with the staleness of the food and, like, that there's just a unfinished risotto left, we know that this was some time ago, but it wasn't so long ago that the food is all rotting already. And it, it just gives you that eerie vibe that, like, something happened to the people here and it was so bad that it was very immediate. I'd like to go back because you had said that Will saw the glasses half full, but I think Lyra would see it as half empty. I don't actually know what the language is there. And I was thinking, I wonder if this betrays something about me because I'm going to just say that they were half full. It's really funny because when we failed at recording this last night, you said it and I wanted to make that joke, but I didn't know how to word it. And now tonight I'm stronger and better. So... Oh, it says half empty. On some of the table's glasses stood half empty. Wow, that does say something about you. Will walks and he sees a harbor where rowboats lie against the calm sea. He touches things every other second, making sure they're real, they're actually real. He ends up jumping into the sea, takes off all his clothes, naked as fuck. He feels safe, finally, for the first time, from these men that have been chasing him and his mom. Uh, once he's dried off, he puts on his underwear, then his jeans, and then he's like, I am hungry. So he tries a couple of hotels, but they're just too big and creepy. He doesn't feel safe. He does find a cafe with bars and photographs of boxers and flower pots and chairs, and it, it feels bright. He opens the doors to let air in because it's hot and musty, and then he goes to look at the other rooms. But then the very last room he comes to he realizes he's not alone. Yeah, so again, with finding just the right place and feeling that he's not alone, we got Will's intuition. Never realized how Goldilocks has felt until now. Yeah, and the suspense that builds makes you think like something horrific is going to happen to this kid. 
Oh, it is. And it is something horrific. His whole life is about <laughs> to change. This is a story all about how Will's life got turned upside down. Can't believe who you are as a person. <laughs> he thought how odd it was that this day had begun with someone outside a darkened room and himself waiting inside. And now the positions were reversed. And as he stood wondering, the door burst open and something came hurtling at him like a wild beast. But his memory had warned him and he wasn't standing quite close enough to be knocked over. He fought hard. Knee, head, fist, and the strength of his arms against it. Him? Her? A girl about his own age, ferocious, starling, with ragged, dirty clothes and thin, bare limbs. Dude, Lyra, you gotta stop bursting out of doors at people. This is just, that's, this is how it is. They react to people at doors the same, you know? It's starting to become a problem, Lyra. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh. This feral child. I love her. I love her. I missed her. Didn't you miss you know, her? I did. This is such a perfect welcoming. I'm so happy so her. that her and Will found each other and all, but like, I missed her. This is good. This is more for me than it is for Will. Sorry, Will. Uh, so the, it's been like five pages. The girl pulls back. She crouches like a cat. Speaking of cats, there's a huge one next to her. Teeth bared. It's Panelaman, as you and I know. He asks the girl who she is, and she's like, I'm Lyra Silvertongue. And she asks where they are, and more importantly, where his demon is. The cat jumps into her arms and, within a heartbeat, changes shape, which leaves Will astonished, jaw-dropped, staring at a brown-red stoat. Moments before it was a cat. Will has no clue what the fuck a demon is, by the way, and he tells her so. They both realize neither of them are from his world, and they both came here by chance. Yeah, she still watches him intently, and he stays calm and quiet as if she were a strange cat that he was making friends with. Such a good line. It's just so good. Yes. Um, and then she tells him, oh, well, you know, I came here looking for dust, which he knows nothing about. And he says, okay, cool. I'm hungry. And they go scampering through the kitchen for food. He's actually really surprised that Lyra hadn't looked for food in the fridge yet. And Lyra's like, why would I think that? <laughs> What's a fridge? What the fuck is this? <laughs> I love that. That's Magic. such a subtle line, a yeah. subtle knife line <laughs> of like Poland being like, Lyra doesn't know what the fuck a fridge is. She just like has blocks of fish and ice from the outdoors. No, she eats seal fat. And so then Pan changes into a bright butterfly at this point and Will asks if so have you never seen a fridge she's like no and then he gives her a can of soda and opens it for her since she doesn't know how which is really fascinating because lyra again has been living in a coca-cola commercial for like <laughs> one third of the previous book gallivanting around with polar bears uh, but yeah yorick would use his claw it's true he would just tear actually yorick would very neatly tear off the little circle you know, like, um, use the Coca-Cola can. Yeah, just like... I just love this passage. She licked it suspiciously, and then her eyes opened wide. This is good, she said, her voice half hoping and half fearful. Yeah, they have Coke in this world, obviously. Look, I'll drink it to prove it isn't poison. He opened another can. Once she saw him drink, she followed his example. She was obviously thirsty. She drank so quickly that the bubbles got up her nose, and she snorted and belched loudly and scowled when he looked at her. <laughs> I 
I do like how, you know, with all this, Pullman just weaves into the sea and, like, all of that technology so we know where we're at here in Sidagaze. And then Will's like, alright, so I'm gonna make us an omelette. And she's like, I don't know what an omelette is. He's like, alright, you can watch and learn. And then he starts asking her to fetch him things while he cooks. Then he shows her how to tip the eggs in after whisking them. She tries to taste the eggs in the pan when they're not cooked yet. And he bats her in pan away. And I'm just like, Lyra, why? <laughs> Wild. Bad. Bad cat. Uh, how, I can't believe they haven't had omelets. He finds out, too, that like she hasn't had a meal since Svalbard, which was days ago. She's been surviving off of bread and things that she's just found here and there, like a trash panda. Lyra, why? She's not socialized, okay? Lyra! <laughs> Lyra! Lyra! She does know how to cook food. So Will starts to cook, <laughs> and he burns, or so he turns the gas on, and he folds the omelets, he has her find plates and clear a table, and he notices, like, ah, oh, so she will take orders if they're sensible, and they have, like, a nice little awkward evening meal together. Pan changes into a goldfinch, and he's flitting all about, and Will surveys her. She has innocent look about her, but also a very wary, battle-worn expression. He forgets her name and calls her Laura and Lara, which is really rude, and she corrects him. Good for you, Lyra. He asks how she got there, and she's like, I don't know, it was really foggy, and when it cleared, I was here. He asks about the dust, finally, and she's like, good comprehension. It's special dust, though, and I haven't found anyone yet to ask about it. Pan changes into, yep. a, like, a black rat with red eyes at this, by the way. It's very cute. Yeah, very interesting. Will watches Pan, and Lyra tells him, you know what, I think you have a demon, or you wouldn't be human. I've seen someone who doesn't have a demon, and they do not act like you. So she's also shocked. Um... So it must be inside of him. And she's shocked that Will has never seen demons or heard of them. And then he watches them both together and suddenly feels super alone. And then he announces that he's going to bed. Oh, Will, baby Sad. boy. He Sad. asks if she's staying here in the city. She tells him she'll find scholars here somehow, some way, and she plans to stay. He says, oh, well, there are scholars in my world in Oxford. And then they're like, whoa, we both have Oxfords? Wow. She wants him to show her how he came into this world. But he says, in the morning, it's the middle of the night. We can't do this in the middle of the night. Yeah. And you can really see the difference now in Lyra's upbringing and how Will notices it beyond all of the parts where Lyra doesn't know how to cook. <laughs> um, and I, well, that's a big part of it, right? Yeah. That she doesn't know how and Will has had to know. And... It's it, it comes through when Will notes that Lyra says to him, show me yeah. in terms of how he came into the world. And he says it. he thinks that it's a command and it's not a request, which I, I mean, it, it speaks to how she grew up, grew up at Jordan College. Right. He's like, I'm not having any of this. He tasks her with doing the dishes and she declares in retaliation then that she's no servant. So what's Will? Lyra. I know. <laughs> Lyra uh, they start to oh argue God. a little too right like they get tiff into little tiffs back and forth and he's like well I'm not going to show you how to go through the window if you don't wash the dishes marriage my friends it's marriage it's really marriage it's like 12 year old marriage um, I was like, hmm, he finally puts his foot down and he's like 
look, we need to tidy up because it's the right thing to do. And he's like, I'm going to go brush my teeth with my finger, which he does. He finds some toothpaste. He's like, going to brush my teeth. Super indicative of who Will is as a character, though, in like who he is, who Will is as a character when he chooses to do the right thing, right? Like, he doesn't know the people that yeah. own this place. They could be assholes. Doesn't matter. He's just doing the right thing. He used their place and he's going to clean it up. And he did that earlier in this chapter, too, right? He took a lemonade from somewhere and he paid mm-hmm. for it. No one was there to to accept payment, but he gave it anyway. Yeah. And he's brushing his teeth. An honest murderer. <laughs> I will kill however many of them I have to. I'll kill them all. <laughs> Speaking of. He goes to bed. <laughs> yeah. He goes to bed. Lyra's waiting till he's asleep. And then she washes the dishes she waits until he's asleep to do so. I just want to point that out. She's a petty motherfucker. She waits. She washes the dishes. She dries them. She steals another Coke. Wild ass. Fucking feral child. Feral stinky cat. And she creeps into his room. Pull or She goes into her room, creeps in, gets the alethiometer out, sneaks back into Will's room to observe him while he sleeps and be closer because it works better when she's closer. <laughs> And then she asks the alethiometer if Will is a friend or if he's an enemy. And the alethiometer is like, he's a murderer. Uh, Lyra, this is good? (laughs) (laughs) Just like with the coke. This is good? (laughs) (laughs) That is the exact same tone, pretty much. She's like, this is good? This is a good thing? And Pan's like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, yeah. We trust murderers. Murderers can find food. They're going to get us to Oxford. And he's brave, like Yorick. We're not as wise as the alethiometer, which, if it has any sentience, it is kind of interesting. It doesn't answer the question Lyra asks at all, whether he's a friend or an enemy. It's just like, he's a murderer. Sometimes the search engine just knows the answer you really are looking for. But not about milk float races, apparently. (sighs) You know, everyone Lyra knows is kind of a murderer, right? Like... Yeah. Lee, he's a murderer out of necessity. Asriel, Marisa, the master, Damn. tried to be a murderer. Will, Yorick. Yeah, Serafina, which we see in a moment in Among the Wishes. Yes. Chapter two. I planned the segue. You really did. So <laughs> chapter two, Among the Witches. Serafina Pekala. Pekala. We're working on it. I don't know. I'm not broken down yet. Serafina Pekala has been on quite a journey. She's worried. She rescued Lyra and the other kids from Bullvanger. She took Lyra to Svalbard, and then she was lost in the sea when the global warming hit. Some of her sisters were able to hang on to Lee Scorsby's balloon, but Serafina was thrown into the fog. She's worried for Lyra, and she doesn't know about Yorick's crowning or anything after, uh, after losing everyone. She and Kaiza have been flying along searching for Lyra, They've been searching for hours, and suddenly she feels a familiar but unsettling tingle on her skin. They have entered another world. Yes. And a bit later, Kaiza points out a shape that is sharing the sky with them. It's another witch's demon who is in need of their help. This demon's witch is of the Tamir clan and had originally actually allied with those directing Bolvangar, but she escaped when she learned exactly what it was that they were doing, but apparently she didn't escape very well because now she has been captured by the woman with the monkey demon. Whomst? Obvious evil villain music. 
like the show did that one episode. It was really cheesy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah. I'm guessing Pullman named Tamir after the Tamir Peninsula in Russia, where interestingly enough, uh, the hmm. Samoyeds live there in our real world. Some of the Samoyed live there. I thought that was interesting. interesting. Yeah, he's kind of, I mean, we know Pullman is just like reaching into a, a basket and choosing, you know, different names for some things. But I like seeing that with some of the witch clans. I mean, my mother has always said creativity is, you know, how you put different things together to make a new thing. I like that. So, I like that. Yeah. He says they have her on a, the demon says that they have her on a ship. And the demon, which is a turn, uh, says that they have her on a ship and they go lower looking for it. They swung around and above, the turn demon keeping close like a child to its mother, and watched the steersman adjust the course slightly as the foghorn boomed again. No spoilers, but it almost feels like foreshadowing. How the turn demon is hanging around. It's almost like seeing the opposite of Roger and Tony Makarios. It's almost like seeing the opposite, right? Like a demon separated mm. from its its person. Obviously, this is a witch's demon. It's different, as we know with Kaiser yeah. and demons that are able to separate. Um, but it's just so taboo that to me it makes me think of the opposite of that. You know, it makes me think of a demon separated from its human that's awful. Yeah. Serafina asks if there are still witches on the side of those working at Bulvanker, and he confirms that there are, mostly of the Bolgorsk clan, unless they've fled. And she asks, she has this demon stay with Kaiza while she goes to look for the witch. A man on the ship confuses Serafina with one of his quote-unquote own witches and tells her to guide them into port. This is set up so well, especially when we learn in just a minute from Coulter that the witches have left. Uh, she hides in the shadows. She sees no other witches. And Mrs. Coulter goes by in a hooded fur outfit. A dark-clothed man rushes at Mrs. Coulter, exclaiming Lord Boreal has started the torture without her. Coulter snaps at him, saying she ordered them to wait, and that she may need to increase the ship's discipline. Coulter asks where the witches are, and the man replies they left. And Coulter says, what? I just watched a witch guide us in, though. Which, that's just, to me, that's so interesting. Hmm. Like, Coulter goes, what are you talking about? I just saw a witch. And the guy goes, oh, shit. <laughs> and he gets sidestepped, right? Like completely sidestepped. They, they, she gets so enveloped in torture and the greed and lust of torturing someone that she doesn't even think that could be a security threat. I think the story is doing a really great job at illustrating each side in the war, interacting with groups of people that are not themselves. Like, how does Asriel treat witches in comparison to the Magisterium? Hmm. You know, like what witches do for the Are Magisterium, they guide the the ships in. What they do for Asriel, well, they fight for him, but in a different manner. And they fuck him. Okay, well, that was one that we know of. That we know of. Serafina shrinks further back uh, at all of this and seeing how things are going, but Coulter is flippant. She moves on quickly to go watch the torture, her favorite. Serafina follows towards the saloon that it seems like the festivities are occurring in. She hides her pine spray because she realizes she can either take her pine spray or her knife and bow. Uh, she can't see anything closer unless she gets rid of one of the set. So she takes her knife and bow. She slips along to the window. She can't see much or hear much. So she uses what magic she can to mentally focus and make herself unseen. 
She has to focus completely with this mental magic to turn up unnoticed. She could pass through an entire room without being seen, but it would be exhausting. Yeah, and Chloe mentioned it earlier about how, you know, the beginning of this book has these really cohesive parallels of Will talking about what it means to try and make yourself invisible in in plain sight. And Serafina is doing the same here, obviously, though, with magic. But, I mean, in Will's world, right, like ours, there's no magic. And if being invisible is such a great, exhausting mental toll on Serafina, who does have magic, I think that's something that we should take into account of how difficult it is for Will and for the many who are trying to hide and and the great effort that it took Will to have to fly under the radar at such a young age all the time. Yeah, if it's hard for Serafina, imagine it for them. Serafina tests this method out with a sailor that's heading toward her. He sidesteps her. He doesn't even glance at her. Amazing. She gets to the saloon, opens the door, and it's actually empty. She sees another door, though, that has stairs that go downward. So she follows them down ambaric bulkhead lights and pipework quietly, listening for voices, which she finds. A dozen people are sitting in council. A cardinal chairs it. There are some clerics. Mrs. Coulter, the only woman at the table, and a strange man with a frog demon, leather-bound books, and he's reading an alethiometer, Fra Pavel. One of the clerics declares that she knows something about the child, and one of them explains the prophecy to Mrs. Coulter. Yeah, there are quite a few things that are thrown in Mrs. Coulter in this moment, but I wanted to call out this quote about Lyra's prophecy. It concerns a child, you see, Mrs. Coulter. All the signs have been fulfilled, the circumstances of her birth to begin with. The Egyptians know something about her, too. They speak of her in terms of witch oil and marsh fire, uncanny, you see. Hence her success in leading the Egyptian men to Borvanger. And then there's her astonishing feat of deposing the bear king, Jofer Rackinson. Jofer Rackinson. This is no ordinary child. Fra Pavel can tell us more, perhaps. So maybe this is addressed in La Belle Sauvage, which I will find out by February 14th. But it's interesting that the circumstances of Lyra's birth are part of the prophecy, which kind of makes you wonder in in my head, how many fucking parts does this prophecy have? Like, that people have been piecing together. And I also think it's interesting because I wonder if the Egyptians knew about this before or if it's something that uh, they only are discussing now after Dr. Linsellius, you know, Martin Linsellius, right? This is right, right? Though After the witch consul told... Um, Farter Corum about the prophecy regarding Lyra while she was like off gallivanting around. Uh, because here's the language that Ma Costa describes Lyra with to herself We're water people all through, and you ain't. You're a fire person. What you're most like is marsh fire. That's the place you have in the Egyptian scheme. You got witch oil in your soul. Deceptive. That's what you are, child. But both of them, we, we get that callback to the whole witch oil and marsh fire thing. We sure do, and you know, Eliana, the answer I can give you without oh going god. too dustiest on you. Oh my god. Is that it's it's all about them Jackie Lanterns and the secret commonwealth, my friend. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Pumpkins? No, the secret commonwealth. Exciting, exciting. Fairies and Jackie Lanterns and the secret commonwealth, and you'll get there someday, child. February 14th. Oh wait, no, secret... 
Secret Commonwealth, we don't have a goal yet. We're going to wait on that one. One step, baby yeah. steps. You know, crawl before baby you walk. Ste- baby steps. <laughs> the whole council is kind of getting into a bit of a spat with Mrs. Coulter. She wants Fra Pavel to look for Lyra with the alethiometer, quite obviously. And he's like, she's already in the other world. There's no point looking for her. And then one of the clerics is like, more witch torture! Which I thought was like, oh, that's oh nice. God. Like, that's pretty much what he says. And Coulter is quaking with anger at this point, upset that no one will tell her the witch prophecy about Lyra. The Cardinal is the only person who doesn't even flinch beneath Mrs. Coulter's wrath. And he says, if the prophecy's true, that he won't explain to Mrs. Coulter, by the way, the prophecy they're withholding, then they are in terrible, quote, responsibility. I love that the way that's phrased, that we are in terrible responsibility. <laughs> Like, we have to do something awful, something awfully oh. responsible, like drink eight glasses of water in a day. They really do feel that, though, about themselves. It's like the Democrats, I mean, the good place people in uh, The Good Place. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, did you watch the latest episode already? I did. Did you? Yeah. I mean, I cried. We are. Is the next the one the last I'm one? I'm pretty sure. I thought we had, like, at least two more. This is it. Ugh. Anyways, terrible responsibility. Yes. And, and then he turns it back on Mrs. Coulter, asking her, So, what do you know about Lord Azrael and Lyra? And then Mrs. Coulter goes chalk white and accuses them of interrogating her and of withholding information. And finally, how dare you assume that I am keeping something from you? Do you think I'm on her side? Or perhaps you think I'm on her father's side. Perhaps you think I should be tortured like the witch. Well, we are all under your command, your eminence. We've only to snap your fingers and you could have me torn apart. But if you searched every scrap of flesh for an answer, you wouldn't find one because I know nothing of this prophecy. Nothing, whatever. And I demand that you tell me what you know. My child, my own child, conceived in sin and born in shame, but my child nonetheless. And you keep from me what I have every right to know. Uh, We're going to talk about this one in the Dusty discussion Mm. for sure. Sorry, Eliana. There's a lot you are not going to know for a while. Um, It's okay. Ruth Wilson really brought this culture to the show. So if you haven't checked it out, like I've said, check it out. Uh, That's enough reason to watch the show, in my opinion. Ruth Wilson really embodied My Yorick. I I feel like. Yeah. Just. My Yorick might be better, but not my Mrs. Coulter. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No offense. No, No, none at all. She was like next level in her delivery. An icon. Truly. Well, in this passage, Coulter seems like a woman that's really backed into a corner, right? Uh, And I think we started to feel that in the end of the first season of His Dark Materials. So I'm glad that Ruth Wilson really embodied this because I don't think that the first time I read these books, I got that. But right here, it's like you could tell Mm -hmm. she has let Asriel slip through her fingers. As we know from seeing that last scene, she had no chance. Um, The way those demons swooned together. I mean, she wanted to. All of her was like, you should go. Yeah. Her vagina but was like, you should go. She did it for herself. Gotta be true to her, not her vagina. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you know, she weighs her options, deciding that, you know, the time that it would take to ask the lithiometer what's going on, like, that's a waste. Let's just go torture the witch. And I kind of do love, you know... I, as you said, like, this is the Mrs. Coulter that Ruth Wilson brought to the show also. Like, 
They describe that when she rises and gets up from the table, some of the men are just so in awe of her that they also all stand up and follow her. They're like, powerful. wow, yes. <laughs> That's actually what they're thinking. They're like, so powerful. Oh, very magnetic. Very much so. Serafina gathers herself because she is, like, upset, obviously, because she realizes they're talking about torturing a witch in the long run, to get their answers. So she's staying unseen, and she sees the monkey's fur bristling. He is swung up onto Coulter's shoulder, and off they trot down a corridor to a smaller room, bare white and hot, and a witch tied to a steel chair in pain. They've broken her legs, and they're twisted, and her face is gray. Mrs. Coulter demands the witch in the chair tell her about the child, but the witch refuses. Coulter gives her a speech about how the church has had thousands of years of experience in drawing out suffering, and this witch will suffer more before she gets to die. She breaks her finger, saying she'll break each one, one at a time, if she doesn't tell them about the child. Yeah, the line about the thousand years of, like, experience is chilling to me. That, that thousand years of experience of just torture, like, my god, like, they know. And I also kind of wonder what mrs coulter means of they can make her suffering endless like is it a bluff or like is the church actually capable of making it happen well this one i don't know i guess in a way we learn they are later on don't we so i am referring to something we will talk about maybe later in the dust discussion yeah i have a i have a similar thought maybe it's the same one whatever anyways um so after a few more fingers break the witch finally spills. She tells them about the cloud pine test in Trollicent, and her voice gives out. Mrs. Coulter slaps her to help her find it. And then there's this line uh, that I wanted to bring up because it reminds me of the Northern Lights, actually. Mrs. Coulter went on, and her voice was all bronze now and ringing with passion. Uh, interesting that it's kind of metallic, bronze. Not the same metal as what we talked about in Northern Lights, but she did have that metallic alloy-esque scent that came up when she got angry so i wonder if this is something similar but now as it all goes on seraphina moves ever closer still unseen thinking that she needs to end the witch's suffering soon and she's now fingering her knife at her waist the witch that's being tortured uh confesses she is the one who came before and you have hated and feared her ever since well, now she's come again, and you failed to find her. She was there on Svalbard. She was with Lord Azrael, and you lost her. She escaped, and she, she will be. But before she could finish, there came an interruption. Through the open doorway, there flew a turn, mad with terror, and it beat its wings brokenly as it crashed to the floor and struggled up and darted to the breast of the tortured witch, pressing itself against her, nuzzling, chirping, crying. And the witch called in anguish. Jamea Aka, come to me, come to me! Ah, the worst. Uh, what the a violent way to start, start a book, you know? I don't really think about yeah. it much, I guess, in terms of things that happen. You just think, like, then this happened, then this happened. But then when you think about it, like, this is the beginning of a book. Reading this for the very first time is, like, <gasps> tense. This book is very tense. Um, I read it. Yeah over a flight back and forth from Michigan and home uh, over the holidays, I reread it. I read it on the way there, I read it on the way back, and I read it, I think, on New Year's, I went to New York, and I read it on the bus. And I finished it on that first half of the ride, yes, that first leg. And so it took me, like, maybe six hours, six hours to reread Subtle Knife. So not bad, not bad. Um, and it, it, 
it really caught me. The scene was so intense, especially the next part, and just the wait for Serafina and how how much this scene is to her and how it really gives her a stake in the war more than ever, right? Like, seeing all this happen is a huge stake, and there's a lot of mythology to talk about when it comes to Yambe Aka. Uh, Aka is a female spirit in Sami shamanism, and also in Finnish and Estonian mythology, Madaraka, the first Aka in Sami mythology, was also known as mother of the tribe and the goddess of women and children, she who gives humans their bodies. And she had three daughters, kind of a triality, and it reminds me a lot of Hekate, in my opinion. It just totally reminds me of the three facets. There's mm-hmm. Seraka, the goddess of fertility and love. A uh, woman would even eat a special porridge after giving birth in tribute to Seraka, very much celebrated as fertility. Juksaka, Aka with an arrow who protects children, much like Serafina, in my opinion, Juksaka is very much what she embodies. And Uksaka, who shapes the fetus and womb and gives the child their body. And overall, Aka and Yambayaka translates to old woman of the dead. In Lat mythology, she was in charge of the underworld, which is similar to the regular world, but it's where the departed spirits walk on air. The entrance to the underworld was thought of as the mouth of a river that gave into the ocean of ice. Yambe Aka ruled that realm. Yeah, I found that very interesting, especially with all of the the northernness that we've experienced in the last book. And something more interesting, not so much in a north place, is Syrian tradition. Uh, the mythology of the old woman of the dead is that before the advent of Christianity, they thought death doesn't sever your spirit and body. So something in Syrian tradition is that when a person sleeps, the spirit that emerges can emerge in the form of a mouse. And in other religions in the East, the souls of the departed often assume animals, birds, or insects. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Right? I was like, wow, this all makes so much sense. They have demons. Huh. It, it, maybe it is like slightly inspired by that i mean maybe there are a couple of religions that felt that i mean we know that philip pullman was like but what if what if like there was a thing going on with this da vinci painting but <laughs> i like that seraphina is the only one to understand what is meant by this request for jambe Aka, the goddess who came to witches before they died and seraphina is ready she steps out and she reveals herself for all to see Kisses the witch's head, sliding a knife gently into her heart. The turn looks at her, and then vanishes. <sighs> it's a moment. Um, interesting in this moment, we're starting to get a lot of the different prophetic elements of the book, and those influences of like Paradise Lost in this chapter, and how people sort of are assuming the roles of different religious figures. Um, this witch started talking about it a little. But here, in this moment, Serafina kind of, right, is stepping into the role of this goddess of death, Yambe Aka. Yeah, she's taking it upon herself, playing God in this moment to uh, to give relief to her sister. And she, mm-hmm. the, the thing that's so important here is she doesn't know this woman, right? This, this Yes. Bitch. She doesn't know her. Um, and she is still giving her this gift of relief and this gift of passage to another world, permanent other world. Uh, and, and then there's this really badass line. I don't know if there's ever been such a badass line so early in any fucking book, but it just goes, and now Serafina Pakala would have to fight her way out. Yes. Boom. I didn't even uh, think about that. Absolutely. It's so good. Even just a one shot 
if you take that line as a one shot, that's just like a uh, action sequence. Go. Um, so good. I feel that way sometimes in video games. Yeah, and in this book, Subtle Knife has a lot of action. Now that's that I true. say it out loud, a lot of action. Amber right. Spyglass has some good action, but there's still a lot of in-between moments. But Subtle Knife is uh, lots of action. So Mrs. Coulter's screaming sees her. Serafina's already a step ahead. She has an arrow in her bowstring and she looses it. A cardinal falls and he chokes. Another man falls in the corridor as well. Two sailors are attempting to stop her escape, but she tricks them, saying, The prisoner's loose downstairs. Go get help. Mrs. Coulter's like, shoot her from behind, and rifles are firing, but Serafina avoids them. She jumps on her pine spray, and Kaiza joins her in the sky. Yeah, she doesn't know where they're going to go next, but they decide to just fly away. She wants to go far, far away from these awful people. She literally is like, get their stench out of her nose. She decides in that moment, interestingly, that one of the arrows in her quiver is meant for Mrs. Coulter's throat. And as she flies, Serafina thinks, what's Lord Azrael doing? What's that motherfucker up to? <laughs> she could track anything happening to anything that was happening when it pertained to nature, using like other naturey things. She's like, I don't know where to find out about Lord Azrael. She decides then to start with Dr. Lancelius and Trollison, who invites her in for some toke. They discuss their fear of Mrs. Coulter. And Serafina seems convinced, even more convinced, about killing her. Dr. Lincelius tells her rumors of the Magisterium now is something an army. One that is made up of many who have been mistreated in the same way that the patients at Bolvanger were. He asks Serafina, do you know the word zombie? And she's like, yes, I too have heard the song by the Cranberries. Oh and God. the authorities are trying to keep them hidden. The Cranberries? But... Yes. Oh, did I want to? The singer died, right? Yeah. And the authorities are trying to keep them hidden, uh, the, this army of zombies, but they fear nothing, for they are mindless. Um, if you're not into mythological horror or cosmic horror, any sort of horror, you might not know the real roots of zombies. I really didn't until a little bit back. One of the oldest allegories for zombies began in 1600 to 1800 Haitian lore, sparked by actually by slavery and the awful conditions it's analyzed that slaves were subject to. The Congo word for soul is nzambe, and voodoo has a strong presence in Haitian culture, and in voodoo, people are said to die two ways. Naturally, by God's will or by sickness, or unnaturally, through murder before fate does destined them to. If you died unnaturally, you would linger at their, your grave in between the worlds, unable to rejoin your ancestors until God lets you. Since they're vulnerable <laughs> during this time, people believe that the souls could be snatched by a powerful sorcerer, Boko, and locked into a bottle where their undead living body could be controlled. And I'd like to add that while researching this, yes, I'm personally choosing Vodou for the pronunciation, but... I didn't realize until 1986 there was actually no orthography for the language. And scholars, there's actually like a lot of debate back and forth online from scholars back in the 80s and 90s about what was the right word. And even now, uh, getting things certified by dictionaries, different names that are accepted. And the term voodoo is often played on Western prejudice. It's kind of laden with lore, like we mentioned before. But when people say voodoo, they think of a voodoo doll. 
They think mm. of, you know, like some stupid Western lore of uh, uh, just a doll made of your enemy's hair that you could torture. And it, it's so much more. It started off as a Dahomean word, uh, voodoo. It's a distortion of it, at least. Voodoo, meaning God or spirit, has been used by many scholars like Darren or Laguerre. But unfortunately, Laguerre. is it I Laguerre? Think, right? I always say I Laguerre. So. Or Laguerre. I, no, I, I was thinking of a different scholar entirely. I don't know. Just no. say. But Never. unfortunately, in popular literature and films, the term voodoo has been misconstrued as sorcery in witchcraft alone, and in some cases can be cannibalistic practices in lore and in movies, all of which are pretty false. It's kindled many foreigners' prejudices, not only about voodoo, but about a lot of the culture in general. Yeah, and I mean, it goes to show you like how much is being drawn in from different different places, but I think that bringing in all this information on like this other culture and this influence and the beliefs that uh people had and i mean it, it reminds me you know right like lo is telling us a lot about history and i think that there's one of the fun things right about being on this journey of literature is all the different things that we get to learn yeah and there's a lot that this is going to apply to not even just in this book in the next book as well uh but I think it has a lot to go with cultures that are uniting. I mean, we're seeing he's spending time right now in this chapter world building the witches and I should be grateful. I'm not. We'll talk about it later. Why not? I'm grateful for this scene. Absolutely. And I really love this expansion of Yambe Aka and a lot of the mythology I did. But we'll, we'll chat more on this later for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Serafina asks news of the witch clans and who they're allying with. Most have gone to their homelands, but they're all waiting for what comes next. Because no one knows what Asriel plans to do, not even Lancelius. He's like, why don't you go speak with his manservant, Thorold, who's still in Svalbard. She's like, all right, peace, and climbs onto her pine spray. I love this passage. I think it's just beautiful, so I'm going to read it. Serafina's journey to the north was made harder by the confusion in the world around her. All the Arctic peoples had been thrown into panic, and so had the animals, not only by the fog and the magnetic variations, but by unseasonal crackings of ice and stirrings in the soil. It was as if, by the earth itself, the permafrost were slowly awakening from a long dream of being frozen. In all this turmoil, where sudden shafts of uncanny brilliance lanced down through rents and towers of fog, and then vanished as quickly where herds of muskox were seized, by the urge to gallop south and then wheeled immediately to the west, or to the north again, where tight-knit skeins of geese disintegrated into a hawking, honking chaos as the magnetic fields they flew by wavered and snapped, this way and that, Serafina Pecola sat on her cloud pine and flew north to the house on the headland in the wastes of Svalbard. Okay, we get it. You can prose, Pullman. He's <laughs> flexing. That was a flex. Every once in a while, Pullman's like... In case you forgot, I can write prose. Good. I've exercised the prose. Now we can move on back <laughs> to the story. Like, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's him, you know, sort of pontificating through it. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the electromagnetic pollution, that kind of idea of, uh, of global warming that Asriel's causing here, I googled up some electromagnetic waves if i was a smarter scientific person i would have more to tell you about them but uh i guess electrosmog is the closest thing 
like the idea of microwaves or smartphones causing radiation on a larger scale or a small scale. So I'm guessing like it's not believed to be dangerous now having like your phone next to you while you sleep. But Asriel, what he's done is probably amplified the radiation coming from that to like a hundred. Yeah. At what point are they just like waves, not microwaves, you know? That there's probably actually a real answer to that. And how I big does the microwave have to be for those waves to graduate? Yeah, to and become macrowaves. Me, Jason Mendoza, scholar. <laughs> um <laughs> Serafina then finally arrives to Thorold, who is being attacked by cliff gas, and she helps to scare them off because they don't fuck with witches. And she lays her bow down to appear as a friend to Thorold and says that she's looking for Lyra, also as her friend. Um, And she's like, we're both concerned for her welfare and tells him, so Lyra's entered another world. And he welcomes her inside and tells Serafina, you know, I don't really know much. I was just Azrael's manservant doing his bidding, washing his clothes, feeding him meals. And then we get this really strange line, you know, yes, we were admiring Philip Pullman's prose just a moment ago, but we get this strange paragraph with a lot of exposition about Thorold being old and Serafina looking young and beautiful and Thorold loving the attention from this beautiful young looking woman and then how he's so good because when Serafina asks him for information he doesn't string it all out to get more time out of it and I'm just like why why is this here I cannot say because he wants us to reward him and when you get to the secret commonwealth He'll want a fucking cupcake about it, too. It turns out, once you read The Secret Commonwealth, I can tell you the answer to this question, Eliana. Mm. Sounds like I've all my life. Sometimes men are disappointing. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, I think we're constantly going to be disappointed by the men in our lives. Mm-hmm. In our mm-hmm. literary lives. Especially. So he says that he doesn't know all of the philosophical details, but basically, Asriel never agreed with the church's message, and he's striking a rebellion against God. He's gone a-searchin' for the dwelling place of the authority himself, and he's a-goin' to destroy him. That's what I think. It shakes my heart to voice it, ma'am. Never call her ma'am. That's calling her old Thorold. Call her miss. I learned this. I worked in retail for like five years. You just call them miss. She's like 300 years old, though. Like, what makes you think she's married? Maybe that was his way of scoping out the situation. The world, keep it in your pants. We started to get a taste of, um, again, this whole idea earlier with uh, the witch and Lyra's prophecy. But once more, you know, that Paradise Lost stuff, it's really starting to come to the forefront of the story with this chapter. And Azrael being like, waging war against God. Yeah, and even like... You get a lot of that angel imagery when it comes to Serafina with her bow. Uh, There's a lot going on, very much so. It's, like I said, a violent beginning, right? Mm. A very violent war is on the air. And Thorold even seems troubled here. He's like, Asriel's just a man, but if any just a man would do it, it's this 2% milk right here, Lord Asriel. (laughs) His ambition's limitless. He's already torn open the sky and he's already gone to another world. And so's Lyra, though. So I'm like, okay. And mm-hmm. uh, Serafina leaves with this knowledge and she's like, all right, well, I'm pretty troubled. She thinks these were human affairs she was inquiring into. 
This was a human matter. Lord Asriel's god was not hers. Was she becoming human? Was she losing her witchhood? If she were, she could not do it alone. Ugh, I like that. It's a good mic drop moment. We could have ended this chapter right here. And then the next part that we're going to chronicle could have been its own chapter. But, you know, it's all one chapter. We're all one big happy chapter family. We are. So, speaking of big chapter families, Seraphina returns home to her Lake Inara tribe, her fellow witch sisters. And she finds many of them in the forested caves on the lake, including Lee Scoresby and those that came with him. Arrow Witch rides again, my brothers and sisters. Scoresby, uh, Lee, I don't know, Pecklesby, Pecklesby. Someone, someone else came with, Pecklesby was the one that, yeah. I like that the, one, it's very cute. Uh, it rides again. The witches offered Lee shelter while he meets her sisters and her family. I mean, while he fixed his balloon. He's happy to see Serafina, although she brings no news of Lyra. Still happy, just writing it down. She invites him to sit on the witches' council that night because they have big decisions to make, and he is very honored to do so. Lee is the only one invited to the witches' cookout. They're like, yeah, Lee, you're the only man that we're inviting into our lives. <laughs> that actually is. Some of them are probably like, why the fuck is this guy here? They want, uh, most of them are like, ooh, is Serafina gonna get the mustache ride? Yeah, she is. Oh my god. Witches arrive throughout the day, and a great witch summit is about to begin. They hold council once they've eaten that night, and Serafina sits at the center of the table. Her scarlet crown nested in her hair. Lee sits to her left, and a visitor of the Latvian witches, Queen Ruta Skadi, sits on her right. And and Serafina has this whole thing where she ponders about how, you know, like, Mrs. Coulter was, was pretty cute for a mortal, uh, but Ruta is way prettier. She thinks with her large black eyes and dark curly hair and like all of like the knowledge and shit in her eyes. And the rumor is that Asriel and Ruta fucked very oh. hard. Good for them. She has heavy gold earrings and a crown in her hair. It's winged with snow tiger fangs. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that whole story goes that Ruta killed the tigers because... The Tartars that worshipped these tigers that she came across didn't honor her when she came into their territory. And she was like, I'm going to kill their tiger gods. And then they went into melancholy and they were like, Ruta, let us worship you instead. And she's like, nope. And she's like, because your worship didn't do much for these tigers that I killed. <laughs> because that makes sense, Ruta. But don't Google oh. tiger teeth crowns. I was like just looking for inspiration. Don't do it because you'll be scarred and sad. You'll see their teeth on dead tigers, Aww. and I was sad. So I did the research so you don't have to. I think that's very important that we do that here on this podcast, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's this line about Ruta Scotty that um, I think needs to be described by a quote from Mean Girls. And the quote is, I hear her hair's insured for 100,000 gold pieces in Tralasund. I hear she did pine spray commercials in Sitagaze. Ruta Scotty punched me in the face once. <laughs> it was awesome. <sighs> Just kidding. It's actually the real line is, uh, such was Ruta Scotty. Beautiful, proud, and pitiless. I can't go on a diet, Serafina. I'm on an all-carb diet, God. Um, we get it. Asriel fucks. Just putting it out there. I get it. Asriel fucks exotic, dark, brunette, Thick-lashed babes that are sexy with 
tiger crowns and bossy. We get it. He has a type. We get it. Asriel fucks. But also, picturing James McAvoy fucking this much is too much for me. I guess we haven't seen him do that yet, thankfully. I don't want to see James McAvoy fuck, I don't think. In this? I mean, I don't mind. I really liked Atonement. I like that movie a lot. I just feel like he has a skinny body. Um, so, did you know that Ruta is actually a super popular Lithuanian name, but it also mm. has a root, no pun intended, of Ru, yeah. R-U-E, which is an evergreen subshrub, basically, native to the Mediterranean and Southwest Asian regions, and it's used in teas today to cure physical maladies, and it's strong and bitter, so it's not like a popular cooking herb, it's extremely hearty, too. Hmm. I didn't know that. Ruta does sound strong and bitter. Yes, she is strong and bitter, and I like that about her. Yeah. Serafina gives a welcome speech telling her sisters the world is broken, and they, we need to decide whether we're going to interfere with these human issues, including the one regarding the chosen child, Lyra Silvertongue. The first, she opens the floor of discussion for her honored guests, beginning with Ruta Scotty and Lee Scoresby. They get to give their opinions. Ruta speaks first. I love this her- description of her. Her white arms gleamed in the firelight. Her eyes glittered so brightly that even the farthest witch could see the play of expression on her vivid face. I gotta know what girl this is based on, Philip. <laughs> Who broke your heart? Who was the one that got away with the luscious dark eyelashes? I gotta know about her. Who killed your tigers? Ah, uh, Philip, I would never let them kill your tigers. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh my god. She speaks of the church's oppression and of the war that's coming. Ruta tells them Bulvanger was not the only place of horror. The Southlands are doing the same and worse. They cut their sexual organs, yes. Both boys and girls. They cut them with knives so they shan't feel. That is what the church does, and every church is the same. Control, destroy, obliterate every good feeling. So if a war comes and the church is on one side of it, we must be on the other, no matter what strange allies we find ourselves bound to. Interesting. The DNC 2020. Oh my god. Uh, she tells them that Asriel is the key to all of this and that he hates the church and what it does and that they should join him. Then she's like, his dick's great. She doesn't we say that, real- but we all think it. We all know. We all know. Um, That's really I- what this is about, right? Like She's like, we should join Asriel. If anyone had a seven-incher, it was him. Oh my god. Uh, I kind of do wonder, though, to what extent Ruda and Asriel were drawn together because of their, like, theopolitical, theological political views. Mm. Yeah. Of she, You know, she's out here, right? She's into killing tiger gods, and she's just like, you know what? What if we just kill gods in general? She's just very into destroying religion, and maybe Azrael's like, I respect that. Mm-hmm. I'm about that also. It is interesting how they like obviously had a fling together and how it went. Like it went well. Um, does make you think? Does make you think? They're out there like voting third party right now. They both they're both there. very ideological in their um, ideologies of killing gods. Yeah, and Ruta feels like it's black and white, like we obviously take this side. Huh. Yeah. Well, Lee is a little more sensible 
Uh, it's his turn to speak, and Hester is crouched at his side. I love her. Her golden eyes are half closed. Totally perfect. He thanks them for their hospitality, and he brings a different journey to the table. He tells them what he's learned from Lyra. He learned that Stannis Grumman, Stanislaus Grumman, Stannis Grumman, Lee learned that Stanislaus Grumman was dead, but he also remembers something else that at the time he couldn't put his finger on when she told him that. He remembers, oh, Stanislaus probably isn't <laughs> dead. Uh, a Tungus hmm. hunter told him that Grumman knew whereabouts of an item that protects anyone who holds it, and he thinks Asriel was full of mischief and trickery and lied about Grumman being dead. He then tells him, he then tells them about the magical object that protects whoever has it, and that he wants to do one last crazy job before he retires to Texas forever for Lyra and find Dr. Grumman to protect her with that weapon. He decides to go to Nova Zembla to find Grumman in the object, then Lyra. Serafina asks if Scoresby has ever been married or had children. Scoresby says no, because he was saving himself for Serafina. Thanks, Eliana. You're welcome. I wrote that line for Chloe. I did this for you. <laughs> he actually says, no, I've never had any children, but I kind of had always wished to be a father. And I was thinking, like, maybe I could be one for Lyra. And Serafina's like, lol, me too, because I have commitment issues after that one guy that I did love that was human and he's going to die any day now. And we had a son that did die. So, um, yeah, that's how they, you know, yeah. talk about their relationship problems together in front of a room of people. And uh, <clears throat> I really appreciate, I think you should read this line you wrote, Eliana, because it's beautiful. Yeah, I, I wrote, Chloe, a lot of things in this moment. For example, I wrote that Serafina, Serafina is then deflowered, and by that I mean she takes off one of the small scarlet flowers from her crown to give to Lee to call her if he ever needs help, and that the witches will make a wind to help him right now. <sighs> okay, I'm just saying, this is very, like, this floral imagery... You're not wrong, Eliana, and all of you guys are going to suffer with me for this whole entire book. So, sorry, not sorry. Um, I do love the imagery in general behind Serafina's flower crown, because the witches kind of seem like this hardened crew, right? Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Ovid's Metamorphoses, actually. Daphne mm. in Ovid's Metamorphoses escapes the god Apollo by turning herself into a laurel tree. Apollo cuts off a branch from the tree and exclaims, Although you cannot be my wife, you shall at least be my tree. I shall always wear you on my hair, on my quiver, O Laurel. He keeps his word, and he's often depicted wearing a laurel wreath as a symbol of his love for Daphne. He's the god of poets and writers, and the term poet laureate that we use today comes from that myth. Huh. So I feel like with all of the wedding imagery and her giving the flower to Lee, that has a little bit of resonance. And Queen Victoria also comes a bit to mind here as far as crowns go, because she popularized wearing orange blossoms in her hair from her hmm. wedding to Prince Albert in 1840. And orange blossoms generally represent chastity and purity, but Serafina's crimson is kind of daring, right? Scarlet yeah. flowers, they depict strength and passion. And they're things that we see her carry with her throughout this book and the last. And actually, they're things that she presents to Lee Scoresby in this, especially when she talks about Lyra and destiny, right? The speech mm -hmm. she gave him in the Northern Lights was impassioned, explaining to him, you know, like, this is what it is to us. Like, the tides change so so simply, so so easy, so lightly for witches. It's not the same for you humans, you know? If, it, if we have to take interest in these little things, then they aren't little after all. Yeah, um, I think that's a really 
really good catch with all of this um and and with the blossoms in queen victoria's hair i I didn't know about that it's interesting i do think regarding you know daphne and apollo i feel like daphne would have preferred to be alive if apollo had like not (laughs) been a fucking stalker just throwing it out there well listen the greek uh the greek kind of ideas and the different Different yeah. books and mythologies. Listen, they're all just exaggerations. They're not. They're not great on consent. I get I'm it. I'm looking I get for it. themes, Eliana, not consent. I know. <laughs> oh, the floor is then opened up to the rest of the council. Um, apparently, witches have democracy in terms of everyone gets a voice, but it's actually not really a democracy <laughs> because only the queen gets to actually decide what they're gonna do. So really, she is Queen Victoria. Damn. Um, they debate on what to do next slash first. Their choices are open war, exercise caution, or build a coalition. The story tells us that the wisest are the ones who suggest building a coalition. Ruta and Serafina agree. Let's do that. But as for the most immediate next steps, Serafina picks out 20 of her best men. Stop women but actually no i i cannot make this up literally the line says seraphina picked out 20 of her finest fighters and i don't know why the world hates me so she wants these 20 best fighters to go north and find lyra and assist her uh ruta scotty says she's gonna go find asriel and learn what he's doing from his own lips or okay with his own lips okay ruta to her. She says she's going to sit on his face. That's pretty much what this line was. I'm not alone in that, right? Like, you agree? Yeah. They're going to fuck. I agree. I uh, agree. Uh, they agreed to journey together, though, for a little bit yes. before then. And But also, before then, what is this? Before everyone goes, Judah Kamenin has something to say. She's young. She's only over a hundred. And then Elder Witch has forced her to reveal to Serafina that she hates Sarasos Grumman because she once loved him. And Serafina tells Judah, okay, you know what? Cray? Not, not what I wanted to hear, so why don't you just stay close? We're gonna keep an eye on you because, you know what? We all need Grumman alive right now. You know, just because it's foreshadowed doesn't mean I have to like it. Just putting it out there. Anyways, um, I feel like Pullman thinks he's expanding on the witches, but maybe the expansions he's doing are detrimental to how he's Mm -hmm. presenting them, and maybe no one told him. Maybe the third book of Dust will have the answers I crave. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. But then, before that third book of Dust, far before, Serafina and her witches go to the new world where no witch had ever flown before. So again, very reminiscent closing line of Lyra stepping into her new world and Will as well. A three chapter jump into new worlds. Good job, gang. Well, that wraps up the first two chapters of The Subtle Knife. And now we can move on to our discussion. So for those of you listening at home, if you have read all three of the main trilogy, Please stay tuned for the discussion where we talk about how these chapters intertwine into the rest of the story or stuff it makes us think about. And stay tuned as well if you have finished the Books of Dust to hear the Dusty discussion where I monologue like an evil villain for a while. (sighs) 
Like Mrs. Coulter. Um, yes. So, to kick off the discussion, here's a quote. He felt for it delicately, listening all the while. The men were moving about downstairs, and Will could see a dim flicker of light that might have been a flashlight at the edge of the door. Then he found the catch of the compartment and clicked it open, and there, just as he'd known it would be, was the leather writing case. Are you ready to have your mind blown? I'm ready. I'm always ready. It took my third read-through of that quote, ever, to notice this is Philip Pullman teasing the actual subtle knife. This is exactly the way that Will cuts holes, cuts windows Mm. with the knife. The flicker of light that he sees at the edge, and then he finds the catch, and he clicks it open, and there, as he knows it would be, is a window. But this time it's a leather writing case with his intuition you so strongly talked about. Yes, yes. And so stupid. Like when I read it, I was like, oh my God, that's the subtle knife. That's him putting the knife in, twisting it just the right way, finding the actual catch of the window and pulling it open. So good. I didn't even notice. Oh my God. I think what made me think about that more through this read through is because we had that discussion about the lantern slides in our Patreon episode and, um, you know, there's that one lantern slide at the end of the Amber Spyglass where Will's like a doctor and he has to like pretend he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know like how he diagnoses things or like sometimes he just like has to lie and mm-hmm. misdiagnose a little bit and then get it right. Like that's his he's superpower. More experienced. Yeah, it actually is because he's just like, well, it's weird how I always know. So <laughs> um, he's just always had that. Uh, the thing about the subtle knife um something that i was thinking about is like thorold's so into the idea of like if any man can do it asriel can do it he tore us open the sky into another world no one's done that before and then i'm just like gestures at all of sitagaze yeah um i mean it's not a hole like a hole in the sky right but i'm just like Many people have done this before, and now Will is also doing it. Yeah, they're kids, right? But we're supposed to see that, wow, these kids are powerful. Actually, though, for real. For real. And it brings me back to that line about Will, that he was implacable, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And the only other time implacable is really used is in the Amber Spyglass, when Serafina's watching Will, uh, his demon, and... It, the quote is, Serafina watched from close by and felt nothing but compassion until she looked at Will's demon, Kerjava the Nightingale. She remembered talking to the witch, Ruta Scotty, who had asked after seeing Will only once if Serafina had looked into his eyes, and Serafina had replied she had not dared to. This little brown bird was radiating an implacable ferocity as palpable as heat, and Serafina was afraid of it. Um, when I talk huh. about passion and strength on Will's character, this is what I think about. His demon's essence is just like fury and heat and ferocity. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Whereas like Lyra's marsh fire and witch oil, there's a sort of heat and fire, as you're saying, to Will as well. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask you first, um, I guess before we get to that. So what for, you were saying that, um, you had an idea of what the like endless suffering the church could impart upon that witch could be. I mean, the thing is, is that Coulter obviously was a talking about her ass because she's been backed into a corner right. and she had to make herself seem like big machismo. 
Um, I mean, that was obvious. She had to, like, kind of turn up the torture in that scene. I'm not excusing it or saying it was a justification, obviously. I'm saying she was also acting a little bit because she was under scrutiny. Uh, Just before that, her bosses were chewing her out, which is never good as a woman in business, I can tell you. But... (laughs) you're totally right that she was bluffing and i mean that's one of her gifts right bluffing um but i asked because i was kind of wondering like if in a way it almost ties back to mrs coulter's story like she doesn't end up giving this witch endless suffering thankfully but in a way that kind of ends up being mrs coulter's fate when she jumps into that like abyss in the underworld and ends up with that endless suffering just going down this like hole Yeah, I mean, they've already figured that, like, regular humans, they can separate their demon, and that later on when we get to the actual underworld, uh, when Lyra gets the underworld to find Roger, you know, you get these people that have been endless suffering, right? And uh, if you're caught up with The Good Place, definitely you should tune in, but they just did an episode about people that were in heaven, but it wasn't heaven because it was actually endless suffering. It was just, like, meaningless. Uh, And that's, that's endless suffering, too, right? So... Coulter saying, you know, the church could make you suffer for thousands of years. I also thought there's something in uh, in the subtle knife with, you know, that back and forth where Lyra and Mary Malone and Charles or Boreal get talking in their separate ways. And Lyra, you know, says, oh, well, those years are wrong. It's really this many years. The fact that mm-hmm. she said thousands of years of the church made me think about that kind of conflation of how many years has the church and have a... Uh, have they been torturing people? You know, uh, that that time conflation has been really prominent in The Subtle Knife and in The Amber Spyglass. Yeah, that is interesting. I She just pulled thousand, but it could have theoretically been more. Right. You know? That's yeah. what I mean is like, it's interesting she said for a thousand years. Why not hundreds of years or, you know. Why not thousands? Well, yeah. I guess it could be thousands. It could be like, it couldn't be thousands because they're not like by the year 2000 yet. But it could have been like over. Yeah. Over a thousand, but yeah. We just anyway. don't know. Interesting, interesting words. It is interesting. Speaking of Charles Boreal, very, very subtly done, but when they get on the ship, someone asks, where's Lord Boreal? He's not there, because we're going to see him in a bit. He's in He's in Will's world, as we all know now. But interestingly enough, they said he started the torture ahead of time or like started it without her and she was mad so i thought they said that boreal started the witch torture he probably started it and was like um i need to go maybe he it might be and will like i i don't remember it could be like he heard something about the knife right from the witch and was like oh oh that's smart because i was gonna say otherwise he was in that room and we just didn't know Hmm. he wasn't he wasn't in the room they told him told him they said that he wasn't here right now. Right. So, um, so um, another thing that I thought there's a lot of sad things. There's a lot, a yep. lot of sad things in these first two chapters. One of them that I wanted to start out with is the way that, as you said earlier, Will and Lyra bickering. It's kind of like you know. And who washes dishes, kind of like a marriage. I'm like, isn't it super sad that this is like the closest to the domestic life scene together that Lyra and Will will ever have? Marriage. Like just the the making of food together and cleaning up and that's it. That's it. That's the closest you're going to get. Also, throughout the first chapter, Will's like greatest fear is the authorities 
coming and taking his mother, which is part of like why he hides her and what's going on. And I mean, that's one of his biggest fears, losing his loved ones. And that's exactly what ends up happening to him and Lyra. The universe takes her away from him. Oh, okay. Because the higher powers say that the two cannot be together. Yeah, this is it. I was like, let's just make everyone sad right now. Um, You're the worst. You're literally yeah. going to hell. <laughs> oh my god. And uh, I mean, it is sad because we also have a couple in this that are basically a married couple that also never get to be together. Serafina and Lee. Oh my god. Um, I'm not kidding. Wait, okay, so I also noticed they're like, yes, it, it's that trope. It's the trope. Because Lee's like, all right, I'll delay my retirement to Texas. He's literally like, I'm going, he literally yeah, he's says, doing it for her, it dude. Off. And, and he, Lyra. Yeah, he's doing and he's mostly doing it for Lyra, but like he's he's delaying his retirement. And you know, whenever someone says like, "Yeah, he's just about to retire after he's one die, last yeah. job," my fucking yeah, one god, last I job can't means believe... you're gonna die, asshole. Yeah, and it it happens. I can't believe that we wove that, it was all wove right that there. trope in. I know it really was. It's also interesting that like, and Serafina gives him the flower, and she's late. It's awful, yeah. and she's never been late in her life, dude. Yeah. Like, Serafina, I get you. Like, never late, always 10 to 15 minutes early, and for the first time, she's late, and it's yeah. awful. The cost is so high. Um, wow, she's... I didn't think we'd have to talk about this right now, but here we are. Yeah, okay, I'm let's wait till we get I'm to that chapter. We have how much time in this book? Forever, because we're only doing, like, two fucking chapters right now. <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna just, like, make Chloe sad every... All the time. Look, I know it's silly, but it's so... Like, they are very much so connotated romantically together. Lee and Serafina are here. Like, it's very much so, like, her giving him the flower and saying, I'll help you. Like, that's romantic. That's very much so opposite chivalric. Like, I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's meant to be romantic. They're in love. They just never got to consummate it that we know of. Things that are not so romantic are about love. Thorold being like, okay, so Lord Asriel. I've heard of him. Um, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> uh, he's like, I don't know how he's going to accomplish all of this overthrowing of God things. Like, the angels couldn't do it and they were powerful. They had all the power of the angels. And yes, the angels are indeed powerful. But as we see in many ways later on, the angels are actually kind of weaker somewhat because they don't have bodies. And I really hope that someone... Comes back and tells Thorold this, like, but also I hope someone comes back in general and tells Thorold, you know, like, Asriel's gone and dead, right? Like, you can you can leave this house and live your life now. Yeah. Some free Thorold. Well, something you and I talked about in the last His Dark Materials uh, Northern Lights episode was that, you know, poor Thorold, dude. Like, he's just been a dog chasing a bone, like. Nothing to do. And Asriel didn't even say, like, hey, you know what, Thorold? Come with me. Yeah. Asriel's just, just like... gone in the new world. Bye. Time to fuck off. I know. He didn't even, like... He was just like, do this job. Just left him. We'll probably see him again in the show. I hope so. You know, for, like, these scenes. Rip. Rip Thorold. We don't know what happened to him, but... Rip. Yeah. Someone free Thorold. I hope he... Free Thorold. Someone tell him, my God. Uh, there's no more paycheck coming for you. And my last thing is, once again, coming back to Sitagaze and a lot of the whoa, imagery whoa, 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 that's whoa. in it. It's Chitagaze. Say uh, it right, Ariana. Say it. Um, say it uh, you're being che- racist against me in Italian. Oh, my God. 
Uh, so the last thing I want to come back to is Chitagaze. <laughs> and uh, how so much of it, like, we start seeing how much of it doesn't make any fucking sense. Right? Like, obviously there's the creepy stuff about everything disappearing, and we all know what that's about. But the whole idea of, like, Will describes it as feeling either Mediterranean or Caribbean, different sides of the world, but okay. Okay. But, like, the the temperature i guess and then when he peers inside of this little tin to figure out like oh what kind of currency do they use interestingly the currency that they use is a called a is called a corona c-o-r-o-n-a is there lime i hope so maybe maybe there is based <laughs> on like this this climate but uh the a corona of course means crown and I, there is like a British like currency, like a coin, like the crown. But but in the Czech Republic, they do have a currency called the corona, K O R U N A. So that's like one way in which like it's pulling from random ass places. And then they talks about how a lot of the windows and doors are um, draped with the bougainvillea, which is a flower that comes from like South. America. Um, let me make sure I got that right. Which is a pow- a flower that, like, yeah, comes from South America, yet it's all the way over here. And I mean, of course, like, we in our modern day and age, like, have just brought plants from all over the world to different places. But, like, it- it's starting to show you, like, oh, there's been a lot of, like, cultural exchange here in Chittagaze. So that's all coming through. Chloe's smiling because I said it. Said it right. <laughs> In my household, so, the thing has been all week. Chitagaze. And as you finally see it, um, I have a last like random thought, and I'm sh- and you touched on this a little when we were watching the His Dark Material series, but as Will uh, was talking about his mother and the enemies that were real, but inside her head or like that he couldn't see. Well, we get like literal unseen enemies soon. Yeah, that's in Chitagaze. Yeah, that's a great connection. And you know, we did talk a little bit in those episodes. Uh, something that I want to weave in. I don't think that we'll have another opportunity. So please go back and watch some of the later episodes of that season one and listen to our season one coverage. Uh, but the there's a lot of description on the panels of the wood on the benches that Elaine counts and. In the show, the actress that plays her plays her really amazingly, really well. And she looks out of the corner of her eye, kind of. And there's a shot that almost pans down and makes us think, like, maybe Elaine was just seeing worlds or seeing, you know, more than the normal eye was seeing. Um, She was Mm, obviously very open-minded, obviously open to the idea of all of this craziness because of John and the letters he sent her. Uh, and there's some lantern slide letters that are included in some of the versions that kind of say as much. So I don't know. I don't know, man. Interesting to think about. Yeah. And also, is Moxie Elaine's demon? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Murder cat. Murder cat. Murder cat. Well, that was our discussion. However, Eliana, I am going to have to ask you to leave because right now... <laughs> We are going to have to do our dusty discussion, which is me and some of our trusted listeners, the listeners at home. So if you have not read the Books of Dust, book one and book two, at the time of the publishing of this podcast in 2020, January 20th, 
or 27th. Uh, Eliana, goodbye. Goodbye. She'll be back, you guys. She'll be back to talk out with us. But for now, we are going to talk about uh, some dustiest, dustiest discussing, you guys. Uh, there's been such a flurry of people that are reading The Secret Commonwealth lately. I'm so excited. We've got to get Eliana on board, but we are going to spoil the heck out of these two books for just a second. And there was, surprisingly for me, a lot of stuff that had to do with the books of dust. Um, whether it was the lavender oil that Mrs. Cooper smelled like in Will's world, I don't know. I don't know. But a lot reminded me of it, especially Will and Serafina's mental exhaustion in uh you know pretending to be invisible pretending to be unseen that's something that very much so comes up in the secret commonwealth with lyra there's a couple of these lines so now she composed her mind and brought all her concentration to bear on the matter of altering the way she held herself so as to deflect attention completely it took some minutes before she was confident she tested it by stepping out of her hiding place and into the path of a sailor coming along the deck with a bag of tools. He stepped aside to avoid her without looking at her once. So that was Serafina in the last chapter here that we just discussed. There are 30 mentions of the word invisible in the secret commonwealth, and half of them have to do with witches or will. She carried herself modestly and kept her eyes down, trying to think like Will, trying to be invisible. She hoped that she looked uninteresting, as Will made himself look, as the witches did when they made themselves invisible. Invisibility is such a strong theme in these books, like Roger bleeding between the pages of the Amber Spyglass while Lyra's passed out, and the garden where Malcolm and Alice are invisible in La Belle Sauvage. Invisible people, invisible demons, all of it very connected. Coming back to Hornbeam and the way the streets are lit like a cartoon or a drawing, that also reminds me of the garden in La Belle Sauvage. It felt like the space between the worlds, and I really want more answers on that garden, that Edenistic feel to it, but almost like Nega Eden, right? All punctuated by a hyena and that awful, haunting laughter. The lawn sloped up to a terrace that ran along the front of a grand house where every window was brightly lit and where people, too small to see in detail at that distance, moved about as if at a ball or a reception for important guests. They danced behind the windows, they stood talking on the terrace, they wandered here and there among the fountains and the flowers in the garden. Scraps of a waltz played by a large orchestra drifted down to the travelers of the grass, and scraps of conversation, too, from the people who were walking to and fro. This right here feels very romantic, of course, uh, with Malcolm and Alice, and it's kind of the Nega Eden. It's not really supposed to be romantic, especially with that horror punctuating it from the hyena. And of course, uh, of course, and of course, uh, it's, it's human copart. But this time, almost the Nega Eden of Lyra and Will together in the end of the Amber Spyglass. The fact that Will is slipping unseen amidst these hornbeams about to cross over into a world in a place no one can see him much like Malcolm begged to pass the gate to save Lyra, comes to mind. So much more sacrifice to come, and all of it really just makes you think. I really hope that the next time we are talking, Eliana will have finished La Belle Sauvage, so maybe she could join in at least for a couple of Book of Dust chats. I don't, uh, I don't know how we're going to schedule it yet. I don't know how we're going to move things around. We are also talking about a possible team up with Her Dark Materials and the Dark Materials podcast. 
maybe do a mini episode about the secret cabin wealth. I am itching for it. I really am. If you guys want to reach out, hit me up on the internet on Twitter at Liza Narber and message me about the secret cabin wealth because it is in my top percentile of interests right now. All right, guys, we're going to keep it really light on the dusty discussion right now because I know we'll have lots to talk about in the coming weeks. So we will welcome Eliana back onto the podcast. That didn't even take me that long this time. No, you know, we kept it light on the dust. We all talked. Oh, I meant me noticing you weaving. Oh, no, yeah. you were very reactive. I don't know how long I took, though. I don't know. We got dusty. That's all you need to know. Very dusty. Will doesn't know what it is yet. <laughs> Lyra does. He'll learn. He'll learn. Truly, he will. He will. You guys, we covered so much ground tonight, covering chapters one and two of The Subtle Knife. Yes. Um, and next time, you know, we're going to have to figure out, are we doing three, four, and five? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. You know, we started off with the idea of doing this one, but doing this uh, first three chapters, but honestly, there was so much in the first two, and I feel like The Subtle Knife is a quicker jog. Then the Amber Spyglass, obviously, I think we'll be doing the Amber Spyglass relatively yeah. a much longer amount of time. So uh, let's savor it, you know, let's savor it until yeah. season two of the show for those of you that are following the show. Also, the Amber Spyglass is a long ass book, you know? Yeah, uh, it's time to bridge ourselves until our final couple worlds. Indeed. So until then, we uh, will be doing... For the most part, probably once a month, these His Dark Materials episodes, and um, every now and then, a Patreon episode about His Dark Materials. But this month, it is about A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, we're doing a Patreon episode for $5 and up patrons. Uh, it's about the Maiden Vault in A Song of Ice and Fire, about some early Targaryen-era people. Hear all about it if you're in A Song of Ice and Fire fan. Check that out at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon and feel free to reach out with ideas for a His Dark Materials themed episode. We mm -hmm. are trying to alternate them every other month, keep you guys interested. So hopefully next month you'll have something special coming your way. And of course, you know, keep up with whenever these episodes come out. Uh, we, as we said, also doing a Song of Ice and Fire read through and episodes usually come out on Fridays, but we are, you know, doing these His Dark Materials episodes last of the month. You can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, C-A-N-O-N, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. We have quite a few messages that we will be getting to soon in an episode. Um, we appreciate everything that everyone sends to us. Yes, absolutely. Please keep reaching out. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to keep up on our episodes as they come out, we are on several podcast platforms. Check us out over at Podbean where we're hosted at Google Play, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, and more. So everyone, thanks again for starting off this new year with us, starting off the Subtle Knife, starting this series with us in general. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next month.